You're listening to the official South Bay Church podcast. For more about us, please visit southbaychurch.us. Well, it was great to be here this morning. I love that song. We could do that every single week, multiple times during the course of the service. And, you know, honestly, I feel like going home right now after that. My heart's in a really good place. Uh, hopefully I won't mess with you at all after that. But uh, do you want to thank our worship team? Uh, what, what an incredible group of men and women. Amen. Now, for those of you that showed up on time this morning, uh, that you uh, kind of experienced something a little bit different today. Uh, other than our kids' kingdom people, which are awesome, super appreciate what they do with our kids, and the assorted uh, crow or squirrel that we may have out wandering on the premises. You may have noticed we had a little uh, easy up out there. Uh, I rolled into the parking lot around 9.15 this morning. It was incredible just seeing this large group of men and women, heads bowed in prayer, uh, kicking off what is the beginning of our first impressions ministry. Amen. And you may wonder what that means, but for those of us that uh, are here every week, it's not that big a deal because we generally know where we're meeting, except for the last couple of weeks with some of the change-ups. We normally, if you're here as our guest today, the theater directly across from us is where we normally meet. Uh, they've got some events going on at the school this month, which uh, has us over here. We usually use this for our regional meetings, which we actually fill the place in that situation. We kind of rattle around in here a little bit at the South Bay Church, but there's room to grow, right? But with our First Impressions Ministry, just wanting to make this a great experience for everybody. Uh, being met out at the apron, being walked to the Kids' Kingdom classroom, this is the first time you're here, uh, it just makes it a little bit easier. And I know as a parent in particular, I, I'd be so much more comfortable knowing that, okay, being taken to, here's where my kid's going to be, kind of knowing what the protocol is and, and the whole bit. But super, super grateful for the Steebergs. Jay Johnson, everybody else that's involved with making, just kind of taking things to another level for our, with our services, amen? The last few days, I've been holed up in Pasadena <laughs> with our Ministry Leadership Council. And, uh, you know, it was, it was actually good. It's in a much different place than it was a year ago. Uh, last year was very tenuous. This year, uh, it's an incredible group of men that are focused on God. We had three days of praying, three days of devotionals. And then the part that I'm not totally fond of, but the need is there when it comes to some of the administrative tasks. Uh, there is an exciting component coming up over the next few years here in that in L.A. we want to be much more outwardly focused, so we're looking at planting additional churches in California, uh, supporting other plantings elsewhere within the Southwest uh, family of churches. Uh, There's a lot of great things that we're looking at and working on, even from a standpoint of now that we're so large, uh, as the L.A. Church with about 6,500 members. You know, we used to do congregational events, congregational services. And should we do that moving forward? <laughs> and that's kind of how it was in the group. There were some yeses, and there were some silence, and there were some no's. You know, and I mean, obviously, with a group that large, it's a challenge to figure out how to set it up. But uh, we may be looking at one in 2017, uh, just really setting them up, too, and then rather than just kind of a church coming together for a church service, we've got the bandwidth, we've got the number of people to make it more of a conference feel. So this is a little bit of what's being talked about, bringing in some great teachers from outside of L.A., uh, breaking out into different classrooms and all. So be praying about that. Uh, we didn't make a whole lot of headway on it, and Marty Fuquay and his Marty Fuquay style realized that we weren't really going anywhere with it. 
So that it might be a good idea to put it out there and pray about it and kind of kick it out to God and see what God, what areas he directs us to with that. But uh, very, very, very encouraging about the, uh, the eight region leaders and the eight elders that are involved in that mix and how much they love God and how much they love each and every one of you, brothers and sisters, we've all been entrusted with. Last week, Brian kicked off our series Generous uh, with a segment that was entitled Ungenerous. And uh, Brian in his typical Brian style, I mean, I, I love Brian. Such a great conversationalist. I mean, he remembers that, you know, you know, I wrote this song three years ago or how many years back that kind of deals with this conceptually. And then taking all three individuals in the song, doing a message around that, don't get any ideas. I sang only because Betty Collins twisted my arm today for a bass part at the beginning. She reminded me that, I believe it was Betty, that reminded me that there's been multiple evangelists back in the day. They preached and sung, so <laughs> thanks, Betty. Um, and uh, anyway, so I will not be writing anything soon that I will be preaching about though, when it comes to music. Let me just leave it at that. But, you know, we walked through three different individuals. There was King Belshazzar, who had some issues, kind of focused on his own personal well-being and pleasure. And, uh, you know, God kind of got his attention by this giant, can you imagine this giant hand? Just <laughs> floating in air, writing on, I mean, there was a meteor, no, actually there was a launch the other night uh, up in uh, Ventura County, and I mean, the social media blew up, you know, is this an invasion, is it a UFO, was it a military strike from the Chinese off the coast, I mean, all this stuff, of course, it's a little funky right now that the military is kind of controlling the airspace out of LAX, and, uh, you know, it's certain approach patterns and that kind of thing, who knows what the heck's going on up there, but anyway, we were dealing with King Balthazar, and then we had the wealthy farmer who, you know, the guy had it going on, was doing great things, and got more caught up in all that he had continuing to be there, and the need to build all these extra barns, and again, being self-focused, caught up in his own personal security. And there's nothing wrong with planning, but there is a problem when, it, when it, we have situations and individuals we see in need, and we look the other way. There was the rich man, again, just a... The rich man and Lazarus, and the, the, just him being oblivious and actually turning a blind eye to need. And then obviously trying to appeal to God and get things to change up after the fact, but realizing, guys, this is our opportunity right now. Once we're gone, you're not going to change anything, good, bad, or indifferent. And all these men had some things that were very comparable. All of them thought that, that they were in control with their own personal destiny. But then Brian showed us in the book of James that we are but a mist. We don't know what's going to take place tomorrow. And it's much more important to be focused on a relationship with God today because that will give us the confidence and the peace and the ability to really engage on the level that we need to on a daily basis with everybody and everything that we come into contact with if God is our focus. In Luke 9, Jesus was teaching his disciples the importance of having their priorities straight. You know, most of us are familiar with the story of the loaves and fishes. And how Jesus took his guys to get away because they needed to recharge the batteries. They needed a time to renew their focus. They needed to rest. And some of you are feeling like that right now. I could have, you know, if it wasn't for church this morning, I might have got an extra hour or two. And there's some of you that, you know, the games are on right about now. You brothers that are in that whole fantasy football thing, wait until after we're done to be checking up on what's going on there, right? But when thinking through that whole situation, it was amazing to see the degree of flexibility that Jesus had in his understanding of the need to meet needs when they arise. 
They went away to rest, but the people followed them. And Jesus turned to his guys and said, hey, well, actually, they brought it to his attention. They, they were kind of embittered. Send them home, man. We're, 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 we're kind of on a siesta here. We're, we're taking a break. We're out camping. We're, it's just us and the guys. Jesus, send them home so they can get something to eat. And what was Jesus' response? You feed them. Helping them with priorities. Sometimes other people's needs don't fit within the realm of what we perceive as our priorities. Maybe it's timing. Maybe it's finances. It can be any number of things. But having the kind of heart that Jesus had, in Luke 6, verse 20, Jesus says, Blessed are you who are poor, for yours is the kingdom of God. Blessed are you who hunger now, for you will be satisfied. But woe to you who are rich, for you've already received your comfort. Woe to you who are well-fed now, for you will go hungry. And I think one of the things that we can see over and over and over again, there's nothing wrong with wealth. There's nothing wrong with being in a, in a nice situation. But when that wealth and that nice situation gets, in, gets to the point where, again, it's all about you, it's totally self-focused, God has a problem with that. Jesus has a problem with that. And that's one of the things I love about our church, even like a day today with our International Day of Giving. It's constantly in the forefront of our minds, scripturally, with what we see in church and in our fellowship, that there is so much more in life than just me, just you, just us. If that was the, people, the focus that individuals that had come into our lives would have had, this would be an empty auditorium this morning. And just realizing that, as Anthony talked about grace this morning, I appreciate the job that he did really understanding what this is all about and remembering what we've been given and there being this willingness to share with others. I love some of the examples, and there's so many of them within our fellowship. Virtually everybody in the South Bay ministry, in particular with the family ministry, is serving in some capacity. Within our singles, there are men and women that have taken on so many different things that even before we had some of these community service projects going on, we're already engaged with the homeless in L.A. that had that kind of an outward focus. But even so, when we look at some of the more visible aspects of that, you know, the Sujimoto's with Silverado, I mean, the way that Mark has headed that up for such a long period of time, and the, when you go in there and you see these individuals with varying degrees of mental degeneration, in a, lot of, in a lot of instances, just sitting there oblivious to what's going on. But when a young child comes in or we come in with our dogs, seeing them light up, seeing them engage, knowing that we're able to make a difference in those situations. And there's so many of those projects, the Keelings, with the, the, the uh, Department of Children's Service and that housing situation, trying to connect the parents back with their kids after uh, the foster situation they've been involved with, trying to reunite families being able to put them into a situation that's better than just going out to a McDonald's to have that kind of connection. You know, I look at the Johnsons, both, both locally and internationally. You know, the example they've been through the years, you know, and they, they, all of us could be doing things a lot different with a, a lot more focus on ourselves. But you know what? Some of us have done that, and we know what that looks like. You know, the proverbial ladder climbing, the, the, the brass ring, and knowing only when you get there, it's, it's a mirage. It's not real. There's always something more that you have to go after and acquire in order to, to, to be sated when it comes to that desire that Satan puts in our hearts 
about money, about things, about where we live, what we drive, what we dress, how other people are going to perceive us when the reality of it all is the only one that we need to be worried about with perception is how God sees us. And that's what's so amazing about Jesus Christ and the grace that's been extended to us is that if we surrender and we make Jesus Christ Lord of our lives and we're baptized with forgiveness of our sins, we receive the gift of the Holy Spirit, and then we're clothed in Christ. So God perceives us the same way he perceives his son, which is amazing. What an incredible gift. Matthew 20, verse 28, says Jesus also explained to them here that when it came to himself, Jesus, the son of man, did not come to be served, but to serve and to give his life a ransom for many. See, this is the true calling of disciples. This is the true calling of Christians. Jesus was generous. Jesus was with God from the beginning. Jesus participated in the creation of this world, of us. And yet with all that he had and all that he was, was willing to give that up and come down to earth to give us an opportunity to have a relationship with God, his Father in heaven. So the title of the message this morning is Generous Hearts. We looked at the ungenerous ones last week. Today we're going to take a look at two examples of individuals with generous hearts. And today, hopefully when we leave here, knowing that we live in a pretty messed up society, do you guys agree with that? You know, all you got to do is flip on the news for like five minutes, and it's, it's just absolutely crazy. Murders, meaningless murders. Brother killed his sister a few days ago. I mean, the campus situation is like an ongoing thing. It seems like every week or so, there's a, 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 just a, this atrocity of a situation that takes place on campus where young lives are lost. Hit and runs, corporate corruption, failed relationships, hostile work environments, and whatever may affect you personally. Maybe you've got an unfair boss. Maybe you live in a loveless marriage right now. Maybe you're in an abusive family situation. But with all that, we can still leave here today hopeful that we can live lives full of promise, purpose, and hope. That's one of the things I love about that song, Jesus Messiah. Hope. Knowing what Jesus came for. Knowing that I didn't deserve it. Knowing that none of us deserve it, but that's the Lord that we surrender to. That's God and his son. And what we're going to do today is we're going to take a look at a story. We're going to start with the story of Ruth. The story of Ruth takes place in the time of the judges. And Ruth 1, verse 1, basically the book tells us a very simple story that in a lot of ways, it's really more compelling because of the spiritual darkness at that time. Brian alluded to some of that last week. The last chapters of Judges describe the tragic moral and spiritual state of the Jewish people during this time. They lost track of the law, they had perverted the worship of God, and they had slipped into moral depravity and darkness. In a lot of ways, not very dissimilar from what we've got going on in our country and around the world today, even the cities that we live in. But the thing that's so encouraging about this book is even in darkness, the book of Ruth reminds us that a godly life is something that's possible to live. It's encouraging to know that even in this day and age today, there are still those that live as Jesus' disciples, even though they're surrounded by a society that gets further and further away from God. You look at how Christianity is, is being attacked 
internationally, but even at home. I mean, some of the things that this country was built on that we can't even do today without persecution or being shut down. You look at prayer, just some of these basic things. We may be faced with situations similar to what some of our brothers and sisters go through in the Middle East at some point in time, if things keep going in the direction that they do. We can't take for granted what we've got today. And really wanting to make the most of every opportunity, realize the freedom that we have, we'll always have in Christ. But it doesn't mean that we'll have a political environment that will enable us to continue this way. And making sure that we're making the most of every opportunity when it comes to family and friends and coworkers and just people in general that we have the opportunity to come into contact. We can still be victorious and live a life of purpose by choosing God, by choosing Jesus. And this is kind of interesting. Today, when a teenager stands before the juvenile court system, for a juvenile court judge, who's the blame? Is it the home? Is it the parents? Is it the lack of a parent or both parents? Is it their peer group? Is it the media? Who's to blame? The home, the society, the individual? And I think the questions like this today bring us to one of the most significant disputes of our day, conflict between the idea that society shapes and determines the individual and therefore reduces each of our individual responsibility, or the idea that the individual bears full responsibility for his or her acts. You know, please the juries today, much of our social legislation, various schools of psychology and sociology, and the supposed philosophies of political parties all reflect the conflict between these two views. How much of a person's choice is determined by social conditions, and how much by the individual's free will? This turns into an incredibly slippery slope. There's no doubt that environment and society do have an impact on our personalities. I can look back at my, my youth, I can look back at the situation that I grew up in, and I can make a lot of excuses for my conduct. I grew up in a very abusive background, verbally, physically, emotionally, and I internalized. I was adopted, there were identity issues, there was a whole realm of things that I was dealing with, and it led me to be an incredibly angry person. It's probably a good thing, and I, I'm not putting this out there jokingly, it's probably a good thing I didn't own a gun in my youth. Hurting someone else or hurting myself would have been something that would have been very viable for me back then. I believe it does get down to our personal choices. I believe God created us in a way where if we have the proper focus, we can make the right decisions. And when we look at, again, where we're at today, there's no doubt that our environment and society do have an impact on our personalities. And it can, it can affect the lens that we look through, the way we process things, process things, or even our general outlook on life. And we see this during the time of Ruth and Naomi. The people of Israel were set up in such a way that there were laws and regulations that had been established so they could cleanse themselves and be right before God. But there were patterns in that society that began to emerge, and the people were jointly responsible with what had been established to maintain a holy way of life. Israel under Joshua maintained a just society. So you can see where a leader with the right focus could definitely have a positive impact. But there's no guarantees that the individuals, any of us as an individual, will choose God's way. 
the nation drifted away from their trust in God. They drifted away from their commitment to the right path. They drifted away from the expectations that God had put before them. And Israel became increasingly unjust. Just a messy society documented by what we see in the book of Judges. In particular, Judges 17 through 21. The society as a whole became incredibly ungodly. Political corruption, religious corruption, rape, murder, war, tens of thousands of deaths. Judges 21 verse 25 closes out with, in those days there was no king in Israel. Everyone did whatever he wanted. It gets down to choices. See, there was a king in Israel. It was God. You know, did an unjust society amplify the tendency for evil? Did it, make it did it make it impossible for individuals to choose the right path, to choose good, to choose God? Well, again, we'll, we're going to take a look at the lives of Ruth and Boaz, two people who lived in that same paganistic society. These individuals reveal the freedom that each of us has, and that's the ability to choose, and the hope and peace that come through a heart that allows you to make the right decision. You know, we talked about society, and a lot of times the standards of our day often reflect the values and morality of our society, which today is tragic. But just like Ruth and Boaz, we also have the freedom to choose. You know, I look at our teen ministry. I look at our teen ministry. You guys are awesome. You're in the battle. You're dealing with all the challenges that take place in the schools, your peers, the media, what the media tells you you should do, what you should look like, who your friends should be, what color your hair should be. I mean, all this stuff. And you choose to be here on Sunday mornings. You know, I look at the examples of, of some of you that, some of you are still wrestling. But, you know, I think of a, a Ryan Toomey. I think of a Kylie Anderson. I think of a Jameson, Craig. And the wrestling that's gone on with them, but the willingness to not give up and to stay engaged and to continue to go after it, and at this early age to make that decision to make Jesus Christ Lord of their lives is absolutely amazing. The fact that they can go against the flow, and I, I don't know, you may disagree with me on this. I think as adults, we've got our shares of challenges I don't think it comes even close to what our teen ministry gets assaulted with on a daily basis. I really appreciate the stand you guys have taken and continue to. And for those of you that are still in the mix, hang in there. Keep fighting. You're making the right decisions here. You know, despite the pressures and the temptations of our times, we too can live godly lives as we look to godly examples. And the Bible is full of both ungodly and godly examples. But we get to look at this incredible example of Boaz, who is in a lot of ways the foreshadowing of our Lord. Now let's take a look at a minute, for a minute here the influences that society can have on us. That monitor went out, but that's still up. Influences in our society. Would you say it makes it hard for a young person to kind of engage and do the right thing? How about an older person? What would some of those be? What are some of the things that pre present challenges for us? When it comes to society, what are some of those influences? Money? Money, what you should do with it, how you get it? I mean, without the improper way of doing it, would there be the degree of crime that we have today? 
Any, anything else? Peer pressure. I've got a few. Drugs. What we, sex on TV and the movies. Media. I mean, we, we just, we get hit with, I mean, how many of you got your smartphones where they're going off nine, ten times an hour or more when it just comes to notifications? No. News, Facebook, email. Yeah, yeah, Jackie, come on, give me a break. <laughs> no, it's true, that thing's constantly, I mean, I should not, I thought most of it down, and it still goes off every few minutes. Weather updates, you know, whatever. Uh, you know, the latest Star Wars trailer. <laughs> <laughs> Pornography, violence, negative peer influence. Those are all things that we have to contend with. And we, honestly, we could, we could continue to recite through that list. In view of the influence of society, how responsible are individuals for their choices? You know, does society force these actions or does it get down to the individual choice? It's kind of interesting that Israel lived for about 400 years as slaves in Egypt. We, is there a whole lot of stuff in the Bible on that period of time? It's a little lean. You kind of understand how they went in. You kind of understand what Moses did for a while after they had been there for a bit, and then they left. Yet, it's kind of interesting. That was, again, over a 400-year period of time. But you go to the book of Judges. It's about 100 years less, 300 years. And there is chapter after chapter after chapter after chapter after chapter in the book of Judges that takes an in-depth look at the deterioration of God's people and the life of God's people during that 300 years. You know, I believe God recorded these events for an important purpose. And through the inspired record of God, he continues to communicate to us today his message to each and every one of the, us that are alive today as to how to live today. Ruth 1, verse 4. Or actually, Ruth 1, uh, chapter 1 through 4. Just a little bit of brief in, uh, background here before we get this going. So this, it, basically, we're dealing with this guy, Elimelech, who was married to Naomi, his wife. They had two sons. They moved to Moab because there was a famine and there was food during that period of time. That, and Moab, the Moabites, were one of Israel's traditional enemies at that point in time. But they went there to flee, flee the famine that they were in. He was also leaving his heritage in Israel. And during the following 10 years, Elimelech died. Naomi's two sons married Moabite wives, which was something that God had a problem with because he knew it was something that would continue to contribute to, to drift away from him and away from what he established for his people. So they married two Moabite wives. Within that decade, both of those men also died. And Naomi, hearing that the famine, that famine period of time in Israel had passed, was determined to return home. At first, her two daughter-in-laws intended to move home with her, but Naomi urged them to stay in Moab. And then we, we, we start a transition in here to what personal choices can look like and what that means for our lives. They, there seemed to be no hope of marriage or home for them, so they returned with Naomi, who was now a widow. Now, one of the two listened to Naomi's urging, and basically Naomi urged her, go back to people, go back to your gods, just stay there. But Ruth... Again, keeping, in this, keeping this in context with a generous heart, made one of the most loyal and courageous statements of individual commitment recorded in the scripture. Abandoning her people that she knew, abandoning her culture, Ruth chose to identify herself with Naomi, 
Naomi's then powerless people, but as well as Naomi's God. Ruth 1, verse 16, if you want to turn there with me. Ruth 1, verse 16. Ruth replied, Do not persuade me to leave you or to go back and to follow you. For wherever you go, I will go. And wherever you live, I will live. Your people will be my people. And your God will be my God. Where you die, I will die. And there I will be buried. May Yahweh punish me and do so ever so severely if anything but death separates you and me. What an incredible vow. What an incredible pledge to stay engaged with this woman. You think about this. Everything that Naomi had suffered throughout most of her life, that her, her daughter-in-law Ruth would accompany her back to Bethlehem, destitute, no money, no husbands, both widows left alone to fend for themselves in, in this incredibly male-dominated culture. They even lacked the money to buy food. You know, one of the most basic necessities that we have in life. The book of Ruth tells of the return of these two women and shows the results of Ruth's commitment. First, we see Ruth's commitment expressed in her lifestyle. Even though Ruth was a foreigner, she was recognized as a good woman who had come to take refuge under the God of Israel. Ruth 2, verse 8. It says, Then Boaz said to Ruth, Listen, my daughter, don't go and gather grain in another field, and don't leave the one but stay here close to my female servants. See which field they are harvesting and follow them. Haven't I ordered the young men not to touch you? When you're thirsty, go and drink from the jars the young men have filled. She bowed with her face to the ground and she said to him, why are you so kind to notice me, although I'm a foreigner? Boaz answered her. We've got to take note on what he saw and how important our own personal examples can be. It wasn't a matter of what she said about herself. It's about other people's perception of her. Everything you have done for your mother-in-law since your husband's death has been fully reported to me. How you left your father and mother in your land of your birth, how you came to a people you didn't previously know. May the Lord reward you for what you have done, and may you receive full reward from the Lord God of Israel under whose wings you have come for refuge. My Lord, she said, you've been so kind to me, for you've comforted and encouraged your slave, although I'm not like one of your female servants. You know, we see with Ruth's reputation here, this incredible example. The way she chose to live her life and her faith in God, this widow with nothing in a strange land. And who takes note of her? This guy Boaz, this wealthy landowner. You know, for him to have heard, I mean, maybe people were bringing the information to him. Maybe he kind of saw her off in the distance and, hey, can, you know, fill me in. Tell me about this Ruth woman. What's going on with her? But because of her conduct, he found her attractive. He found her commendable. A woman of incredible character. I think really understanding here, because of that reputation, and ultimately the thing that we see here is humility, her willingness to take direction from Naomi. Her willingness to take the direction that Boaz gave her. I think one of the things that each of us needs to remember here is that humility brings redemption. Verse 14. says at mealtime, Boaz told her, come over here and have some bread and dip it in the vinegar sauce. Kind of sounds like the Olive Garden or, you know, these Italian restaurants. They bring out the little plate, you know, little olive oil, a little balsamic, you know, if you're like me, a little red chili pepper, a little bit of Parmesan cheese, and start dipping. You're good to go. Getting hungry here. <clears throat> 
So she sat beside the harvesters and offered her roasted grain. She ate and was satisfied and had some left over. You know, the little doggy bag going on there. When she got up to gather grain, Boaz ordered his young men, let her, every, or let her even gather grain among the bundles and don't humiliate her. Pull out some stalks from the bundles for her and leave them for her to gather. Don't rebuke her. So Ruth gathered the grain in the field until evening. She beat out what she had gathered, and it was about 26 quarts of barley. She picked up the grain and went into the town where her mother-in-law saw what she had gleaned. Then she brought out what she had left over from her meal and gave it to her. You know, what can, what can be learned from Ruth here? It's amazing how powerful her conduct was. It amazes me. We look at this destitute woman who owned nothing and actually believed she might be following Naomi to her death would catch the attention of a successful, wealthy landowner. Again, we learn the power of humility as Ruth follows Naomi's instructions. Ruth 3, verse 1. Ruth's mother-in-law, Naomi said to her, My daughter, shouldn't I find security for you so that you will be taken care of? Now, isn't Boaz our relative? Haven't you been working with his female servants? This evening he will be winnowing barley on the threshing floor. Wash, put on perfumed oil, and wear your best clothes. Go down to the threshing floor, but don't let the man know you are there until he's finished eating and drinking. When he lies down, notice the place where he's lying. Go in and uncover his feet and lie down. Then he will explain to you what you should do. So Ruth said to her, but wouldn't this simplify sometimes some of the discipling times that we have? I will do everything you say. And that kind of shortened some of our interactions a little bit. Anyway. She went down to the threshing floor and did everything her mother-in-law had instructed her. After Boaz ate, drank, and was in good spirits, he went to lie down at the end of the pile of barley. Then she went in securely, uncovered his feet, and lay down. At midnight, Boaz was startled, turned over, and there lying at his feet was a woman. So he asked, who are you? I'm tempted to say something here, but I won't. I am Ruth, your slave. Spread your cloak over me, for you are a family redeemer. You've shown more kindness now than before because you have not pursued younger men, whether rich or poor. Now, don't be afraid, my daughter. I will do for whatever you say, since all the people in my town know that you're a woman of noble character. Here we go again. That humility, that focus, the decisions she's made. He recognized her as a woman of noble character. Yes, it is true that I am a family redeemer, but there is a redeemer closer than I am. There, there was another relative that was... Uh, not as far removed as Boaz was. That's what he's referencing here. He says, stay here tonight and in the morning if he wants to redeem you. And it gives some insight to his character. I think he was pretty enamored with her already. What do you think? But he's willing to, to leave it to God and what had been established in the, in the uh, Jewish tradition and that he would go back to the next in line and let them know, hey, you know, here's this woman. She's available. You've got your rights to redeem her, marry her, do whatever you want with her. And he, he takes that chance. He relies on God. So he goes and he takes care of all that. Anyways, he says, stay here tonight in the morning. If he wants to redeem you, that's good. Let him redeem you. But if he doesn't want to redeem you as the Lord lives, I will. Now lay do lay lie down until morning. You know, it might be easy to kind of misunderstand some of the story here, unless we grasp a little bit of something when it comes to the customs of the days. When Ruth went at night to the threshing floor where Boaz and his men were threshing wheat and lay down at his feet, she was submitting herself to him. It was a submissive posture. And this was a, uh, a symbolic act of expressing her own willingness to place herself under the protection of Boaz. And you know, we think about this, Boaz is every bit as equally impressive. He's wealthy, great reputation in the community. He's an honorable man. 
You know, I think the implication or suggestion is clear here that God appears on the scene to save these desperate, needy widows. And Boaz would become their savior. He would rescue, deliver, and redeem them from their distress, their sufferings, their hopelessness. That hopelessness would be something that would be turned to joy. You know, a little FYI here, Boaz was the son of Rahab. Any of you remember Rahab? Rahab the prostitute. You know, I mean, you want to talk about stuff shaping this guy's upbringing, man. I would imagine there were probably some issues, her reputation and who knows what else. So that means that Boaz and his mother Rahab, as well as Ruth, were to become part of the lineage of Jesus Christ. Joshua 2, 1 through 24 talks about it, as well as Matthew 1, verse 5. How incredible is our God? You know, here you got Rahab the prostitute. She's with the Canaanites in Jericho. You know, the, the, the Israelites are getting ready to march on Jericho, take it on out. We all know the story about the walls coming down. There were spies that went in to check it all out to kind of get an idea as to what was going on there. She hides the spies for three days. They escape. They let her know, hey, we'll be back to save you. You just need to hang this little red cloth out the window. We'll know where you're at. We'll come and get you. And because she, again, this common prostitute, it's amazing. She put her faith to work and did exactly what she was instructed to do. This led to the rescue of Rahab and her family, just as, the, as Joshua and the two spies, or the, the spies were saved by her, they come back and did exactly what they were going to do. They saved her from her situation. Rahab, common prostitute, one of the ancestors of the Savior himself. Christ Jesus our Lord. This is such an amazing, incredible picture of the saving grace of our God. His mercy and his grace are not only eternal, but they're able to save anyone today, no matter who you are, what's your background, prostitute, thief, murderer, adulterer, liar, fame seeker, drug addict, socialite, materialist, or unbeliever. You may view yourself as kind of down and out. You may view yourself as being kind of well off. Doesn't matter where you are or what you've done, God can save us if we only believe and trust in his son, the Lord Jesus Christ. Back to Naomi. Naomi and Ruth were totally unaware that God was about to save them from their desperate situation. You know, isn't that sometimes how it is in our own lives? If we just hang on a little longer, don't give up, keep fighting, stay the course. I know most of us have been around for a period of time. We can look back and we can think of a number of situations that we were rescued from where in the moment we didn't see where it was coming from, how it was going to happen, but God delivered. God is always faithful. God always delivers on his promises. It may not always be within the realm of the timing that I would like, but he always comes through. Wait on God. You know, the story has a happy ending. A couple psalms that give us a little bit of insight as to how God views our situations. Psalm 68, verse 6 says, God provides homes for those who are deserted. He leads out the prisoners to prosperity, but the rebellious live in a scorched land. Psalm 102, verse 17. He will pay attention to the prayer of the destitute, and he will not despise their prayer. This will be written for a later generation, and a newly created people will praise the Lord. That newly created people, you think that maybe encompasses us? That's how awesome God is. That's how consistent God is. That's the continuity of God and God's plan from the beginning. 
We see Boaz redeem Ruth. Just as as Ruth needed a redeemer, each and every one of us need a redeemer as well. Amen? Boaz marries Ruth, and in the last verses of the book of Ruth, we see this incredible revelation. Ruth 4, verse 17. The neighbor woman said, A son has been born to Naomi, and they named him Obed. He was the father of Jesse, the father of David, the grandfather of Israel's greatest and most godly king, King David. You know, we look back at this incredible account. Did Ruth deserve any of what she got? I mean, she was a Moabite, an enemy of Israel. Did she deserve any of what she got? Did Boaz owe her anything? And what we see here with Ruth and what we see here with Boaz is exactly what a relationship with God looks like. Just as Ruth needed a redeemer, each and every one of us here needs redemption. Turn with me, if you would, to Titus 2, verse 11. Titus 2, verse 11. For the grace of God has appeared with salvation for all people. See, I think one of the things that's key with salvation is recognizing it for what it is, receiving it, and then doing everything you can to hang on to it. Amen? Continues in verse 12. It says, instructing us to deny godless, godlessness and worldly lust and to live in a sensible, righteous, and godly way in this present age. While we wait for the blessed hope and the appearing of the glory of our great God and Savior, Jesus Christ, he gave himself for us to redeem us from all lawlessness and to cleanse for himself a people for his own possession, eager to do good works. This is such an incredible visual. We need salvation. God sends Jesus Christ for us. Gives us some direction on how to conduct ourselves. And then lets us know that we'll be redeemed by Christ. Through the blood of Christ, we will be cleansed. And we'll become one of his possessions. That is so amazing. That's the God we serve. That's the focus he has. That's the love and the grace that he wants to extend to each and every one of us. You know, Romans 6, verse 1. When it comes to grace, though, we've got to be careful. Just as we see throughout the generations in the Bible, there are people that are plugged in doing the right thing. There's those that don't. There's various forms of drift, various forms of recommitment. Ultimately, the Bible meets each and every one of us where we're at today. It doesn't matter where you are. You're in there. But the thing is so awesome to know is that God has written victory stories for us if we're willing to choose God. And each of us have the ability for that victory and that hope as we move forward. Romans 6 verse 1 reads, what should we say then? Should we continue in sin so that grace may multiply? Absolutely not. How can we who died to sin still live in it? Are you unaware that all of us were baptized into Christ, were baptized into his death? There's a symbolism. There's meaning there. Acts 2, we know that Peter talked about the need to repent and be baptized for the forgiveness of sins. And in this, here's the symbolism that's involved. It's a participation in that death of Christ as you're emerged into the waters. He says, therefore we were buried with him by baptism into death in order that just as Christ was raised from the dead by the glory of the Father, so we too may walk in a new way of life. It's a line of demarcation between the old life, the burial in the waters of baptism, cleansing us of our sins, coming out of the water, resurrected to a new life, transformed with an understanding of how amazing God is and the gift of salvation 
that is so freely given that the recipient's only willing to take it. You know, we think about the gift for those of us that are baptized disciples. Did we deserve it? Does God owe us? See, everything we have is a gift. And the biggest one is love. Martin Luther, Protestant reformer, writes in his explanation of the first article of the Apostles' Creed, for those of you from a denominational background, there's kind of a prayer that's said in a lot of the denominations. It's directly taken from Luke 11, verse 1, where the disciples asked Jesus how to pray. But he says about the Lord's Prayer that part of God's continued creative activity in our lives is God's provision of everything that we need for daily life. In his explanation of the Lord's Prayer, Luther writes that when we pray, give us this day our daily bread, we are asking God to receive all his gifts with gratitude and thanksgiving. A generous heart is something that leads to a generous life. Jesus lived a generous life. He literally gave himself away so that we'd have the opportunity to have a relationship with God. You know, and I think really understanding this, 1 John 1 talks about, you know, we say we love God, but we hate others, that our love for God is questionable. And we look back what Jesus has equated love to. Obedience to him is love. Loving your neighbor, engaging people that you wouldn't normally have anything to do with is love. Giving others the opportunity to hear the good news of Jesus Christ is love. In 1 Thessalonians 2, verse 8, it says, We cared so much for you that we were pleased to share with you not only the gospel of God, but also our own lives because you had become so dear to us. See, it isn't about focusing on what we can't do, but rather how when we follow God's commands to love each other, it gives us the ability to engage in the areas that each of us have something that we can do for God and others. You know, in this country, surveys reveal that on the lowest incomes, our lowest income earners are proportionately our largest givers when it comes to giving to church and charity. You know, Bill Gates is a little bit of an anomaly. We know that he's given millions to the poor, but among millionaires, he's an exception rather than a rule. You know, millionaires have these impressive bank transfers with a lot of zeros in them, but proportionate to their income, they're usually anything but sacrificial. It is those minimum wage earners, state pension holders, who are often the most generous proportionately. You know, one of the things that came out at our MLC meeting, which was a little surprising, or maybe it shouldn't be based on the information that I just gave you, but the Inland Empire has the highest per member giving of any of our regions in the church. And we think of some of the different regions that are out there. I mean, the Inland Empire, people live out there for a reason. It's less expensive. It's from a standpoint of being able to, to get into a home, a lot more blue-collar workers. I mean, coastal communities are crazy. We, we all know what housing looks like out here. But it's amazing to me that they actually outgive per member every other region in the church. And I think there's a little story I want to share with you that I think can kind of play into where this is at. There was a wealthy man who came to his minister and said, I'm having a, pri a problem with this tithing thing. I made $900,000 last year. And if I'm going to tie, that means I need to give $90,000. I can't afford that. So the minister says to him, why don't you come on over here and pray with me? The millionaire accepts the invitation. The minister prays. Would you pray with me here? Dear Lord, 
Please reduce this man's income so that he can, he can afford to give. <laughs> Isn't that how it can be sometimes? You have a lot, you owe, you owe a lot, you own a lot, you owe a lot to own a lot. And instead of looking at what God's blessed us with, we look at the fact that you know, this becomes a responsibility or there's this debt or this dollar amount that is really insurmountable. But it's a hard issue. You know, these are challenging times. And we, each of us, we don't live in a generous society. But in this society, or any society, for all time, God's call is constant. We're not called to love when we have enough love to give. We're invited to love with what we have. You know, accepting this invitation allows us to truly experience transformed lives without limits when we surrender to God. The abundant life that God wants for each and every one of us. I'm thinking through that today. I mean, there's a lot of things going on. Obviously, today's our International Day of Giving, and, and it, it meets a huge need both within the United States and internationally. And when it comes to what we saw with the millionaires, and guys, really, when it comes to the world, we are the one percenters in this group, realizing how blessed that we are. And this church really rises the occasion. We, when it came to our special missions offering, we were able to meet the needs that we had committed to. And let's make sure we do the same thing today. I mean, for those of you that are visiting with us, when it comes to the International Day of Giving, we have this benevolent arm of the church called Hope does an incredible job. We'll have a video that you'll be able to see here in a moment. But just does a great job of making a difference in the lives of those that need a difference made in their lives. Whether it's tsunami relief, earthquake relief in Haiti, just a lot of the different situations we have around the world really understanding what we've been blessed with. First and foremost with salvation, but even where, I mean, how did I end up living where I'm living? How, how did I end up being born in California? You know, why wasn't I born in Africa somewhere? Why, why wasn't I born in, you know, any of these third world nations that many of us have gotten out and even served in? One way, you know, one way only, can we engage on the level that we need to, and that's just that, that acknowledgement of what we have and what we've been blessed with that gives us the opportunity, if we're grateful, to fulfill our purpose and to be like Christ, men and women with generous hearts. Let's take that into consideration this morning. Just uh, so I say, it, we are going to be taking up our International Day of Giving offering first. There will be uh, two, two times where things will be collected this morning. The first one was we wanted to take care of the International Day of Giving first. There are these envelopes that are available for you. Uh, you can fill them out with your name. If it's cash, you can put cash in there, a check. This way our counters know where to direct this. After that, our, uh, we'll be looking at taking up our weekly offering. Uh, if you're a guest with us today, we don't want you to feel any compulsion to engage on that level. Uh, this is what we do as members of the church from a standpoint of keeping the lights on, facilities like this, outreach in our community, our staff. Um, if you want to participate in that, want to encourage you to go ahead. Don't want you feeling funky either way. Uh, with that, though, let's go ahead and uh, go to the Father in prayer right now. And uh, then we'll go straight to a video. Oh, Father, I want to thank you for uh, just the examples that you give us in life. Uh, being able to take the opportunity to look at Ruth and Boaz this morning and their focus 
their love for individuals other than themselves, and because of that love, being able to make a difference. Father, I know that each of us want to live a life of purpose. We want to live a life that means something, uh, a life that can have an impact, a positive impact on those around us. Father, please uh, just continue to help us to understand, even as we head into the month of November here with Thanksgiving and some of the different things that we do in the forms of outreach. There are 12 baskets providing food for those that need it. Uh, God, that we can continue to meet those needs, that we can be generous in all we do, and that it's not just about money. Uh, God, it's about being generous with our time and our love and just seeing and being able to look at people the way Jesus did, realizing that this society that we live in today is harassed and helpless. Everyone without you is harassed and helpless. And Father, thank you that you've given us the opportunity to know you, to have a relationship with you, to rely on you, your word, and the examples that you've given us through your son and so many others that we can look to in the Bible. God, right now, in a special way, I, I want to pray for the Torres family, uh, for Julian Torres, who has an infection in his leg again. Uh, just please be with every aspect of the treatment, the doctors, the family, uh, and just knowing that uh, with our reliance on you, God, that uh, this, there will be a faith-building outcome to this situation. Just please be with everybody in that situation. Uh, Father, any other health needs that we have in our group, please be with them. Uh, God, we just want to rely on you in everything that we do. And again, we're so grateful for the fellowship that we have here and with you. Help us to have generous hearts. It's in Jesus' name I pray. Amen. Thanks for listening to the South Bay Church Podcast. For other sermons, videos, upcoming events, and more about our church, please visit southbaychurch.us.